You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount. We've titled the series Live because we know and understand this, and maybe it's redundant for those of you who have been here since the series started, but for those of you that are just jumping in and visiting this morning, we've titled the series Live because we know and understand that ultimately we're not left to our own understanding to figure out how to live life and live life abundantly, but instead our creator who created life, who created all of the world and all that's in it, stepped into the world that he created through the person and work of Jesus and told us how we can live and live life abundantly. So instead of us just kind of arriving at our own stances on how to live life, we can instead look to him and what he said to see how to live life and live it abundantly. So that's why it's titled that. I, I'm, I've been single dad for a few days. <clears throat> my, my wife is uh, out of town, just having some, some time to be. And so I don't know what you'll get this morning. Maybe a little angry, maybe a little sad, maybe sad, mad, but that's where I'm arriving. So let's dive in. Matthew 5. Nice, fun, light subject to tackle today, this morning, divorce and oaths. So yeah, <laughs> let's keep the room as heavy as we did last week, okay? Let's do that. Build on it today, Matthew 5, 31. These are the words of Jesus given to us through Matthew. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. If you guys would join me, even as I pray this morning, after the, the service, but throughout the week, if you guys could pray for Hunter. If you guys know Hunter, Hunter's been working for Gospel Community Church for about three years and is our faithful sister in Christ who we love, and she lost her father this week. And so if you guys can, uh, I'll pray for her, if you guys can also just be in prayer for her throughout the week. Father, first, we thank you that we have so many things to celebrate. And first and foremost, that you're good and that you're faithful. As we just sang about, we can trust and rest in your promises. God, your word is true. We never have to doubt that. We never have to doubt who you are and what you say uh, about us as being true. That first and foremost, we're sons and daughters, that we're washed, we're cleansed, we're pure, we're righteous, we're holy and set apart. Let us be reminded this morning, that's not of our own doing, that's of your grace, your goodness, and your faithfulness. Father, we pray for Hunter, we pray for her mom, for her brother, for her sister, that you would bring peace to them in a time of mourning and in a time of grieving. God, I know your word says that we don't grieve like those in the rest of the world, and and we know that's because of this truth that we don't grieve alone. You grieve with us. You know pain, you know loss, you know suffering, Jesus, all too well because you stepped into the creation you created. I pray that Hunter finds incredible comfort knowing that you are with her and that you know the feeling of loss. Father, we pray that uh, in the season ahead that you would provide for them for whatever their needs are. And the ultimate prayer is that they would grow to know you in this time and be more dependent, more trusting in you. 
Father, we pray for those in our church family as well that are hurting, grieving, suffering loss this morning. We know it's such a difficult text, Father, that there are many here that have gone through the just painful memory of a divorce. We are reminded of the fact that we don't keep our promises, but we can rest in this, God, you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, 31 through 37 is where we'll be, and our main point this morning is mark his words. Mark his words. And, and, and so I think sometimes we can hear that phrase like mark my words and it has like a negative connotation to it. But this morning it's mark his words. And what, what, what we're saying by that is whatever he said is true. It will either come to pass or it has come to pass. So we can mark his words down as being true, as being faithful. We never have to worry about anything that God has said about that or that is coming or that he has done. Okay. I, I grew up with my dad saying this commonly. All a man has is his word. All a man has is his word. So that was ingrained in me. I'm like, that's really bad news because I have not been faithful to my word. And I don't know a single man or woman that has remained steady and faithful to every word that they've let forth or that has come forth out of their mouth. But I remember it still bothers me today when people don't keep their word. A few years ago, our family went out crabbing and the most epic part about crabbing is whenever you pull your pots up in my Kids love to just, they have these tongs and they pull all the crabs out of the pot. And that's like the highlight of crabbing for them is just messing with the crabs. Even if we don't catch any keepers, they just like messing with the crabs. So we left our crab pots out there and I I looked over at another guy, a couple guys, and and I said, hey, do you mind if we just leave our pots here? We're going to run back to town and grab some coffee. And, And the guy goes, yes, you can trust me. A lot of people might pull them up. I won't do that. These are the words he said to me. I was great. This faithful guy. So we run to town, get some coffee, run back. As we start walking out to the dock, I, I see this guy with our crab pot up on the deck pulling crabs out. I'm, I'm boiling. So I, I don't say much. You could tell he was shocked. So pack up the kids, pack up wife, put, put them in the car. And then I shut the door and she's like, where are you going? <laughs> and she's like, let it go. I'm like, I can't. And I close the door and I go back. And I had a talk with him and he was a grown man. I, I, I would put him in like his fifties, but I had, a, I had a talk with him about as a grown man, when you tell someone what you're going to do, you need to uphold that. I asked my wife how it went afterwards. And she was like, you're pointing your finger a lot. So that might be my only feedback. And so I'm like, I'll work on that. But I was mad because I told him, I was like, you robbed an experience from my kids. But, but in that you said that we could trust you. And, and he was like, Oh, you know, and he had every excuse. But I remember being like, Oh, I just so mad at this guy. It's so funny that I can be like that. And within an hour later, I can do something where I give my word of commitment or my faithfulness and then break it. But what I plead for is mercy and grace. Again, I have 2020 vision on your words and on your sin. And I've got like 2,600 on my own. So I can zoom in laser focus and be like, this is what you've said. This is what you should do. And I'm horrible at this in marriage. I'm just being honest. I have a great memory being like, you said this, you didn't do this. This was supposed to be done. And that leads to some arguments because I keep a record of wrongdoing because I said, this is what was said. And this is what should have been done. And and I hold people to a standard that I can't even keep myself. I'm not saying that it's bad to hold someone to their word. I'm saying that what we're supposed to do is operate out of the same sort of grace and motivation that Christ has given to us. So let's remember that this morning as we dive in to mark his words, but we also have to Question this, why does truth matter so much to us? Why do we care so much about truth? Have you ever asked that? If, 
if you are in this room and you are an atheist or someone who's listening, you would have to ask, why is keeping your word any more important than not keeping your word? Because according to an atheist perspective, that's neither right nor wrong, good or bad. It's just, just what it is. It's indifferent. But the truth is, is no one lives consistently. That truth matters to us. People's words matter to us. Broken promises matter to us. We have a whole list of promises we make. In fact, there's probably people in this room that have made promises from a New Year's resolution. And right now you're like, yeah, that didn't go super well. What are the promises we make? Here's some, that we're going to lose weight and get fit, that we're going to quit smoking or chewing, that this year we might learn something new. We're going to get out of debt and save money, that we're going to spend more time with family. We're going to travel to new places. We're going to be less stressed. Maybe we'll volunteer. We're going to drink less. We're going to read our Bible more. We're going to wake up earlier. We're going to get serious on our prayer life, and we're going to be faithful to our attendance at church. Many promises that we've all made that oftentimes we break. Here's the problem. If we trace a lot of our hurt back in our own lives, I bet we can trace a lot of hurt back to promises or words that people spoke that they never followed through with. This is where a lot of pain comes from for my life. This is where a lot of pain comes from for kids where you said you would do this and now I'm having to question the reliability of your word. Again, I would ask this, why does it matter? It does. It does something to us. Like the guy who pulled up their cap pots, like, like it, it, it infuriates us or all of a sudden we're like, you said this, you were supposed to do this. Where does that come from? Here it is. God. God is a God of truth. And God is not a God of truth because he does truthful things. God is a God of truth because truth is who he is. He is true. Therefore, truth flows from him. He's not proving himself to be good because of good, uh, good acts. He is good, and so goodness flows from him. He is true, so truth flows from him. Let, let me read some verses here that speak to God in being true. Psalm 31.5 says this, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth, or some translations are faithfulness. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. John 7.28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. John 8.26 says this, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And here's one we're going to come back to. I would mark this in your Bible and mark his words. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He, uh, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, 19. God is a God of truth, because God is true. The reason why you value truth is because of God. And here you go, because you were created in the image of God. The reason why everyone in our society values truth, why we value people keeping their word is because we were created in the image of God, who is true, who always keeps his word. And so it matters to us. And in fact, words have meaning. God created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into his existence, showing that words have power. There's not been, I, I don't know if there's a dumber saying in the history of dumb sayings than sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
We can trace back to many hurtful words that people have said that have spoken to us. It's because God gave purpose and meaning and power to the words that come from our mouth, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4.29 that every word that comes from our mouth should give grace to those who hear it. It should be used for the purpose of building up. Our words matter. When Christ stepped into humanity, it said that the word became flesh. When God was creating, he was speaking it. And what was happening, it, it was like Jesus bringing to power the very things God was declaring in his creation. The reason why words matter and promises matter and truth matters and these things matter is because of God and because we're created in his image. Maybe that's too simple for you, but that's the truth. We see in our society right now that people have deep value of, of truth. Where does it come from? That's the question we need to be asking. But I believe that's why we get mad or upset when people don't live up to the words. What is the greatest promise oftentimes broken in our society? Covenant vows made whenever we get married. I promise to love you till death do us part. Actually doesn't mean that. What it actually means is I promise to love you oftentimes until my emotions run out or until my emotions die. The, the, the phrase we commonly hear is this, I've fallen out of love with you. In other words, what I made a promise to on our wedding day was that I would make sure that I'm always true to my emotions you provide for me and that I will always make sure those emotions are there. And anytime my emotions run dry, then I'm going to get out. In that sense, what you did is you made a commitment to your emotions that someone else provides for you. That's a selfish love. Look at what Jesus says here. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What's going on here? In the Old Testament, what would happen is the Israelite men were divorcing the women like crazy because their hearts were hardened. But we have to understand whenever we read the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that's a narrative. In, in other words, scripture is not prescribing something there and saying, this is okay to do. It's th this is what Moses said. He's like, hey, if you're going to divorce your wife, you need to give her a certificate. This was actually intended to protect the women because what would happen is the men would go around and say, I want a divorce. I'm going to divorce you. And, and it was like the women were in limbo. What do I do? And then after they went and had their affair or went, went with another woman, then they would sometimes come back and say, actually, I want you back. And, and then the woman felt obligated to go back in this relationship. And so what the certificate did is said this, when you hand it to the woman, it means you never get to lay hands on her again. She's free. She can go, which means she can go marry now, which did this. It slowed men down to be like, okay, wait, if I give, if I give this to her, it's, it's done. So it was a means to protect women. And it was a means to slow people down and make them think about what they're doing. So that's what was going on here. And so Jesus is saying, hey, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Know this, that was never God's plan. God's plan, we see this in the Garden of Eden, is for one man and one woman to be wed, to leave their mother and father, and hold fast to each other. But he says, since the hardness of heart, Moses did this. Look at 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I know our church family. <laughs> I know that we have people in this room that right now are like, oh, if I read the newsletter, I don't know if I would have come this morning. I didn't know it was going to be on divorce. I know that one of our old members on our shepherding team, Brian Wakefield, is someone who went through a divorce, whose wife had a mental breakdown and left. I know the same thing happened to my mentor when I lived in Reno. His name was Tony. 
I know the same thing happened to a scholar that I love and admire whose name is Zachus Swine with his wife. Those same stories that happened to Brian happened to them. I know there are some people in this room that would love to still be married if their spouse wanted to remain faithful to them. I know there are some that maybe are in this room are going, I don't know if I divorced on biblical grounds or not. And I'm not sure about the decisions that I made. Let me assure you with this. I believe it was last summer. I was with Brad Leibold, our executive pastor on a trip. And I heard a guy that almost every time he he introduced himself or said anything, he would say, my name is so-and-so, I'm divorced. And he said this around, I believe the majority of Christian men. And I was like, man, that gets at me that each time he feels the need to let everyone there know that he's divorced. The reason it got to me is because of this. Your core identity, if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, is that you're not a divorced person. You're a son or daughter of the living God. That's your core identity. That's who you are. You're not a divorce certificate. You're a child. And maybe you divorced for wrong purposes. Maybe they weren't biblical. Maybe you can lay that down before the Lord and know this, that as it says in Romans 8.1, that there is no is that there is therefore now no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think if some people have the opportunity to reconcile, then reconcile, sure. Why is it a big deal to God that we keep our covenant oath in marriage? Because it's the one place on this earth that Jesus said, this is how I will picture my relationship with my bride, the church. If you want to know what my love for my bride is like, I'm, I'm going to instill something so special to me. I'm going to give this covenant marriage And my hope is that through it, you can get a picture of what my love like is for you. (laughs) That's why it's a big deal for Jesus. That's why he wants us to remain faithful to our covenants. That's why he wants us to remain faithful to our vows. Because ultimately it's this, and this is what we have to rest in. We haven't. In every way, we don't remain faithful to following Christ as he's laid it out. But in every way, Christ was and is faithful on our behalf. And so therefore, we place our trust and faith in him. Not in what we've done, not in what we haven't done, not in our faithfulness, not in our unfaithfulness in him. It's good news for people that have gone through this to be like, man, I've wrestled with this. I don't know. It's not the one unforgivable sin. (laughs) And I think sadly, sometimes throughout Christian past, it's almost been preached or heralded or said that this is like the one thing. It's almost unforgivable. Scripture doesn't make that clear. It, It makes it clear that God's design and desire for marriage is uphold the covenant, but also that for those who haven't, that's not your core identity. Then Jesus jumps into verse 33 and says this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. (laughs) Do you know the context of what's going on here? It's pretty incredible. What, What the Pharisees and what the scribes were constantly doing is they were looking for loopholes and so when it, when it came to adultery, they're like, well, we've never lusted after a woman. And Jesus is like, actually, this. When it comes to murder, they're like, well, we've never murdered. And Jesus is like, well, angry, that's murder. They found a loophole here too, which is quite ridiculous, but this is what the loophole was. They would swear, but if they swore by Jerusalem, it's not binding. But if they swore while pointing toward Jerusalem, that was a binding oath. If they swore by the temple, that was not binding. But if they swore by the gold in the temple, that was a binding oath. If they swore by the altar of sacrifice, that wasn't binding. But if they swore by the gift that was on the altar, that was binding. You see this? This is like, 
me telling you something and going like this. That's, that's the, or we didn't shake on it. They're finding these loopholes of like, I crossed my fingers or we didn't shake to, to be dishonest. What Jesus is saying here is this, this, as soon as everyone listen, as soon as you have to say that you promise or that you swear by anything, it's a testament against you. It's a testament against you because you'll know this as a parent, if you have kids or one day have kids, if you tell them you're going to do something and they say, you promise, oh, do you know what that means? Can I count on you? Can I count on you to show up this time? Can I count on you to do this? So as soon as we have to swear by something, it's a testament that our word typically wasn't good enough or it's in question that people are making us have to swear or give a promise or something like that. I joke a lot and my family knows that. And so I'm wrestling through what to do with all of that. But my, <laughs> my kids will often ask me, dad, you give your word. And that's the one way they know that no matter what is said that, that I'm telling the truth. That's what he's saying. What are some some things that we find easy to lie about in our culture today? Or why do we lie? I, I think that's a good question because Jesus is saying right after that, 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. He makes it simple. Let what you say be a simple yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Jesus is saying let our words be true. Imagine the societal impact it would have that if Christians lived up to the words that came out of their mouth, that if we could trust one another in our commitments and in our word to be faithful to that, imagine how it would impact society at large that we're not having to always be in question. The reason why it's sometimes hard for us to tell truth is for these reasons. The first one, I'm going to give five. When something greater is happening and letting loved ones down becomes easier. So we might not be faithful to our word if, if something greater happens. For instance, you've committed to be at a t-ball or soccer game. You've committed to be at something. You're going to go watch your friend's rehearsal, anything like that. And your boss calls and says, this could be your big ticket. I need you here tonight at seven to give your presentation. At that moment, you say, I'm going to be unfaithful to what I promised because this, this is bigger. So therefore, possibly letting your family and friends down becomes less important and getting your promotion becomes more important. So when bigger things are attached to it, then, then sometimes we'll go, it's okay. A lifetime of letting my family and friends down, that's okay as long as that it was for trying to impress these people that I have hardly no relationship with. Another reason, when telling the truth can mean loss. So if, if I'm honest right here, this could mean that I lose my job. If I tell my boss that I've been shorting my hours or I've not been faithful to them, I could lose my job. Or if I say this to my spouse, this could make them view me like this and, it'll, and I could lose my image that I've built up and I've created. So sometimes we don't tell the truth because we love our image and we're in love with the false image that we've created that's not true at all. And we don't want to lose that. Sometimes we don't tell the truth because we don't have the courage to actually tell the truth, to say the lifestyle you're living is according to scripture destructive. I love you too much to let you move forward in living like this. And instead, I want to come alongside you and say, let me help you live into who you are in Christ and what he is de determined is true. But what we do is we love ourselves and our own comfort more than we love other people, which is why we sometimes are cowards and hold back telling things to people that need to be shared. 
It's selfish. Uh, imagine a doctor like that. A, a doctor that doesn't have the courage to tell you bad news because they, the, the, the root of it oftentimes is we want to be popular. We want to be liked by people. We want to be approved by people. So you go to the doctor, they see a big mass and the doctor, and, and you say, how are things looking? The doctor goes, great. Things look good because the doctor doesn't have the courage to bear bad news to you because they want to be liked so much. Would you call that a good doctor? No. How much more so should we be willing to tell the truth when souls are at play? Next one, the third one, discipline. As a parent, it's easy to lie on discipline. So this one for parents, right? We do this all the time. We're like, I'm going to count to three. We're not a counting family. No shame for you if you are. We're going to count to three. You count to three and you're like, okay. Then you start counting all over again or you up your counting or then something else is going to be the consequence. But it's like, if you said you're going to count to three and you count to three, there needs to be a consequence and there needs to be discipline. You need to follow through. Or I've said, if you do this, this is going to be the discipline that comes with this. When we don't follow through, we're building mistrust or distrust inside of our kids, losing respect and making them think that I can't even trust mom and dad on their discipline. Overpromising is another one. Hey, we should grab coffee. We should do dinner. We should get together this week. We'll definitely make it happen. Hey, will you disciple me? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> we make promises like that and we just overpromise to things instead of just say, I can't. One of my favorite movies on this subject is Liar Liar. If you've ever seen it with Jim Carrey, but for one day he can't lie. And the reason I love is because anything that comes his way, he just has to tell the truth. I think there's a sense of freedom and beauty that would come from a society, but especially church family that did that. You know what we'd have to start to do? Resting and trusting in our identity in Jesus more than anything else for our security. Last, the big way, Carmen Imes wrote a book called Bearing God's Name, Why, Why Sinai Still Matters. What, what, what she's unpacking in this book, save you some time. What, what she's unpacking in, in this book is this, is that people have wondered what it means to take the Lord God's name in vain. And what she is unpacking is what it means to take God's name in vain is to profess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life and to live a life that, 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 that is inconsistent to that message. So she's like, at that point, you are bearing that you are God's child and then you choose to live life as though you are a slave, though you are free what you are doing is taking God's name in vain because you're living inconsistent to who you actually are. And so in other words, by that, all of us are guilty. Every day that we worship someone else, the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Do not give your worship to anyone else. Every moment that we love our spouse, every moment that we love our jobs, every moment that we love our careers, every moment that we love other things and that we love our future plans or we just love other things more than we love God, it's in those moments when we're professing that Jesus Christ is our Lord, our, our, our everything, our ultimate. But, but truthfully, I'm living in a way that doesn't reflect that. Everything else is. And so by doing that, we start to make it clear that we're saying this, but we're living this way. We do that with, with many things. We can do it from a self-righteous standpoint to where it doesn't look like we give much grace, though we say that we're about grace, we can do it from the more licentious standpoint to where we're like, I'll just live however I want. And so therefore we profess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and then choose to live a different way. And that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And sometimes for people who have a hard time giving grace, I'll say this, that your demands and standards on those around you are so high, sometimes, not always, sometimes, that comes from a shame of I'm not enough, 
and I wrestle with not being enough. And so what I can do to keep the spotlight and focus on me is I can drive up the demands and standards of everyone else around me. So they fail and it comes off me and it's put on you. Again, all of these things are not us living consistent to the message of grace that says, I desperately need grace day in and day out. I trust people less that, that, that hardly confess sin versus the man or woman that every day is like, yeah, blew it again. What do we do with all this? We have God whose image we're created in, who's a true God, who's put value on words. We have divorce. We have these oaths that we're supposed to uphold. But if we're all being honest, the, the playing field is leveled at this point to go, none of us have upheld our word, have upheld our, our, our end of the, uh, 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 of the deal. Spouses all across the board, as, as we said even weeks ago, if you've lusted after a man or woman, then you're guilty of adultery. What do we do with this? It's in moments like this when the room gets heavy and we can say, okay, can we be honest and say that none of us have upheld this, that our words aren't true, that we have not remained faithful to our words, that our words are fickle, that we throw out sometimes empty words, that we overpromise and underdeliver, that we don't say what we mean and mean what we say, then we go, we need someone. <laughs> we need someone to step in. What we need is we need Jesus. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 1.20. I believe we have a slide for it. Here's what we need. For all the promises of God, think about that. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God. What are the promises of God? What are they? That, that Jesus, or that first God would send a Messiah, that he would come from the line of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come from a, vir a virgin, that when he died, none of his bones would be broken, that his garments would be divided, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be betrayed by a friend. You know, these promises and about 300 more are given to us in the Old Testament, and they all find their yes and amen in who? Jesus Christ. Whatever God says, mark his words and mark those words that it'll be done. You never have to question whatever God says he's going to do, whatever God says he has done, whatever God says he's going to do in the future, you can count on that. You can mark those words. Those are final. There's not a human court in this world that can overturn a single word from God. And so what happened is Christ stepped in and what he did is he lived a life of faithfulness to God. Every word that came from his mouth was a faithful word. Every yes was a yes. Every no was a no. He was never a coward. What he did is told the truths that needed to be told. What he did is he upheld faithfulness. But what he also did is he went to the cross because the cross is saying this, hey, I'm willing to, to, to do whatever it takes to prove my love for you, including this act of crucifixion. Are my words true? Oh yeah, you can count on them because my words also are proven by these actions right here. And if I was ever gonna bail out, it would have been right here in human history and I didn't. And so what he does on the cross is he makes that exchange. When we place our trust and faith in him, he gets all of our unrighteousness, as Ian was saying earlier, this, this righteousness, our sin is, is transferred to him and all of his righteousness is transferred to us. Imagine this, you have a big whiteboard and on the whiteboard, on one side, it says Rick and on the other side, it says Jesus with a line going down the middle. Every sin that's ever brought up in my life, imagine that, that someone says, Rick, you did this or Rick, you did this. And every time we see that, there's a tally that goes over on Jesus's side. Another one comes up, it's tallied on Jesus' side. Jesus' side is just tallied with points. There's not a single one on my side. There's just one word, and it says righteousness. 
Why? Because 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So what God does in Christ, it doesn't count a single sin against us. It's all counted to Christ and all of Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. And here's the thing. If that's true, that's true for all eternity. We can't turn that over. We can't uh, unchange that. God only has to say it once and that's final. Mark his words. If God declares you righteous and innocent, that is who you are. You can never be anything but that in his sight. That belongs to you. His words are final. You can mark those words down. What else has God said to us that is true in Jesus? I'll share a few things with you from scripture. Romans 8 one says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this. Do you believe right now because Christ has declared you guiltless that you are? Because those are his words if you've trusted in him. There can be not a, not a single thing that is found that makes you guilty. Isaiah 43, 4 lets you know that you're precious in his sight. Do you believe that? Because he says it's true. And if he says it's true, it's true. 1 Peter 2, 9 calls us a royal priesthood, a chosen race, and a people of God's own possession. Hebrews 10, 13 says that Christ, by a single offering, has perfected every one of us that have placed their trust and faith in him. Once and for all time, by a single offering. Hebrews 10, 10 says that once and for all time, that we have been sanctified. In other words, set apart and made holy. Colossians 3.3 says that your life is hidden in Christ. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that, that, that God has the same affections for you that he has for his son? Because that's where your life is hidden. And in fact, John 15, Jesus says, you're clean because of the words I've said to you. Do you believe in this moment you're clean? But do you also believe this? In John 15.9 and John 17, Jesus says, I love you as much as I love the father. And the father loves you as much as he loves the son. Do you believe that God in this moment loves you as much as he loves the son and the son loves you as much as he loves the father and it's not based upon you, but based upon his words and his words being true? What about 1 Corinthians 6, 11? It says you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified through Christ. Do you believe this? As Romans 8 says that there's nothing in all of creation that could separate you from the love of God. Those are his words. You can mark them, they're true. You can't change them, but you can believe them. I love what Brennan Manning says. Also, the reason why words like this minister to us, because they're echoes of the ultimate word right here that speaks to us. Let me read this. I have a word for you. <laughs> so what Brennan's doing here, I should preface, is, is he's, he's in a sense saying like, like, these are God's words to us. I have a word for you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this, I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be as you should be. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this very moment as you are, not as you should be? That's the question. Our words are fickle. His word is true. Our emotions can tell us, I'm struggling to believe this, but we have to bring our emotions and make those subservient to God's word that says, this is what's true. Mark my words. If I say this, it's done. Nothing can change it. Nothing can overturn it. If I've said this, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child. It's done for eternity. Now, what do we do? What do we do with this? The first thing we, we, I'm going to say is Luther and Calvin made this clear, is that we can still take public oaths, 
Because if we remove our ability to take public oaths, then what we'll do is remove ourselves from society. And that was never God's intention. So the reason I'm saying this is because if you go into the military, you have to swear yourself in. If you speak before a jury, you have to swear under an oath. And I believe we have the liberty to do those things. So did Calvin and Luther because it helps us in our societal engagement, okay? So I don't think we're, we're breaking that. There are even times from God's civil law that, 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 that he made oaths, okay? Next, I think the next thing that we do is we make reasonable commitments to people. So try this. This is just simple, just down to earth simple. Instead of making these big, grandiose commitments, why don't we make a commitment even like what Brad said at the beginning? Hey, for this next season, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to commit to this, and I'm going to live faithful to that because there's people and souls on the other side of my commitments. Whatever you do, and I think Christians should do this because it impacts society, I think we should let our yeses be yeses and our noes be noes. But we're not left alone in this. The same spirit who rose Christ from the dead now lives inside of us to help us to be faithful to the words we make to people. Last, it's going to be hard for you to know and mark his words, and mark his words is true if you don't know what his words say. My encouragement to you is this, live and abide in God's word. As, as, it, said, um, as it was said to Joshua, meditate on my word. Meditate on the laws of this book day and night. I believe that if we can believe this is our truth, think about that, that every time you open this up, what you have is truth. Every word on every page is God's truth. This is true because God is true. It's, 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 it's his word inspired by the Holy Spirit. When you read it, you are reading God's truth spoken about him and about us in him. Let's pray. Father, let us take joy in knowing this, that we can mark your words as true and that what you've declared over us is true. At our core, we're not what we've done in the past. We're not what's been done to us. We're not divorced. We're not oath breakers. We're not people that haven't lived up to our word. You look at us and see people that have been faithful to every word that we've ever said, every commitment, because Christ you are. In your name we pray, amen.